Chapter Three of *The Girl Who Had Nothing* by Mrs. C. N. Williamson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Lynn Allison. A Deal in Clarios. George Gallon had lately left a well-known firm of stockbrokers, in which he had been junior partner, and set up business on his own account. He had started at a trying time, about the close of the Boer War when the financial world was in a state of depression. But he had since brought off two or three coups for his clients and himself. Though he was unpopular, he had begun to be talked of among a limited circle in the city as a man who would succeed. Joan Carthew had heard George's luck, discussed by guests at Lady Thorndyke's, when she had been at home from school on her holidays, Therefore it was that she had so promptly accepted the offer thrown to her in derision, as a bone is flung to a chained dog. "'If I keep my eyes and ears open, I shall get tips,' was the thought that flashed into her mind. If Joan had been an ordinary eighteen-year-old girl, she would have faltered before the difficulty of turning such tips to her own advantage on a salary of two pounds a week. But she would not have entered George Gallon's service if she had been one to falter before difficulties, and three days after the reading of the will, which left the girl a pensioner on her own wits, she presented herself at the office in Copthall Court. It was early, and Gallon had not yet arrived. However, his curiosity to see whether Joan would really keep her engagement brought him to the city half an hour earlier than usual. When he came in, there sat at an inner office at the desk used by his late stenographer, a young woman plainly dressed in black, though not in mourning deep enough to depress the spirits of the beholder. It was Joan Carthew. She had already taken off her hat and hung it on a peg. Gallon noticed instantly that her beautiful golden-brown hair was dressed more simply than he had seen it. Every detail of her costume was suited to the new part she was about to play, that of the businesswoman. "'Good morning, Mr. Gallon,' she said crisply. "'Your head clerk told me this would be my desk. "'I have brought my own typewriter. "'I hope you don't mind. "'You know from the test you made the other day "'that I take down quickly from dictation "'and that my typing is clear. "'I'm ready to begin work whenever you are.' "'Glad you find you so businesslike,' said Gallon, "'uncomfortable in spite of himself, "'though there was a keen relish in the situation.' "'You will, I hope, never find me anything else,' quietly replied Joan. So the new regime began. At first, for some days, the man was ill at ease, could not collect his thoughts for dictation, and stammered in his speech. He regretted that his desire to humiliate the girl had tempted him to offer this position. But Joan's attitude was so tactful, so unobtrusive, that little by little he forgot his awkwardness, and even the meanness of his motive in making her his dependent. He almost forgot that he had ever asked her to marry him, and because he found her astonishingly clever and useful, he waived the idea of further insults, which had flitted through his head when first the dethroned heiress became his secretary. One autumn morning Gallon was late. Joan sat waiting in his office, and had opened such correspondence as was not marked private, had typed several letters ready for her employer's signature and having no more business which could be transacted until he appeared, began to glance through an illustrated society weekly which she took in. 
this paper she always read with eagerness not because she had the morbid interest of an outsider in the doings of society with a capital s but because any information she could glean about important people might be of service in the career to which she undauntedly looked forward on one page of this particular paper country houses electric launches libraries motor-cars and even family jewels were advertised and it was an absorbing page to joan Today she gazed long at the reproduction of a handsome steam yacht which for some weeks past had been advertised for sale for the sum of twelve thousand pounds only a few months ago she had been planning to have some day a yacht of her own it had been one of the many pleasant things she had meant to do with lady thorndyke's money i shouldn't mind owning the titania if she's as good as her photograph the girl was thinking when george gallon and a fat foreign-looking man came in you can go back into the next room miss carthew said george abruptly i shall not need you at present and you may tell them outside that i am not to be disturbed joan rose and walked into the outer office where the three clerks who were all more or less in love with the beautiful secretary glanced up joyfully from their work at the sight of her the youngest whose desk was close to the door had already proposed he was a dreamy youth with a fluffy brain but his father was a rich man known in the city as the salmon king who cherished hopes that one day his son would cut a figure on the stock exchange these family details the young man had confided to joan as a lure to matrimony and though she had answered that he was a foolish boy and nothing was further from her intention than to settle down as mrs tommy mellis she had not in so many words refused the honour now she whispered a request that if he had still a regard for her he would slip away and buy a box of chocolates, for the need of which she was perishing. A moment later Tommy was out of his chair, and Joan was in it. His was the one seat in the room where conversation in Gallon's private office could by any means be overheard, and Gallon was aware that whatever might go in at Tommy's right ear promptly went out at the left, without leaving the smallest impression of its meaning. "'Is the deal certain to come off?' she heard George inquire sure as the sun is to rise to-morrow replied another voice with a foreign accent you are the only outsider in the know that's worth something isn't it it's worth what i promised for it at least that and i want an advance to-day in such a hurry remember i shan't make anything or be sure you haven't fooled me for weeks still i can manage a hundred i need ten times that you'll have it the day the clarios are taken over Shh, not so loud and for no names for heaven's sake man oh that's all right the clerk near the door is a fool the only one out there with any real brains is a girl but she doesn't know the difference between clarios and clerics that's why i employ a woman for a secretary she spends her spare energy on the fashions and doesn't bother about things which are none of her business in spite of this protest gallon dropped his voice only a word here and there started out of the broken murmurs on the other side of the door but one more sentence almost whole came to her ears grierson mordaunt sort of chap carries these things through then reappeared tommy with the chocolates and joan went to her own desk but the stray bits of information were as flint and steel in her brain and together they struck out a spark of inspiration. 
she was as sure as if she had heard all the details of the transaction that the world shipping combine of which the american millionaire grierson mordaunt stood at the head had arranged to take over the clario line of italian boats plying between mediterranean ports the fat man with the foreign accent was no doubt the confidential agent of the italian company and being acquainted with george gallon and his methods had given the secret away for a consideration doubtless he was poor perhaps in difficulties otherwise he would have kept the information and bought all the clario shares he could lay his hands upon now joan knew why gallon had written yesterday to a man in manchester asking him how many clarios he had to sell and what was the lowest price he was prepared to take for them adding that it would be useless in the present depressed state of the market to name a high figure this man had been requested to wire his answer and at any moment it might arrive when joan had jumped so far in her conclusions gallon escorted his visitor out flinging back word that he would be in again in half an hour the girl's blood sang in her ears it seemed to her that fortune was knocking at the door but could she find the key to open it she called all her wits to the rescue and in five minutes that key was grating in the lock in gallon's private room was a small desk which she used when her services were wanted there this gave her an excuse to go in and in passing she threw a glance at tommy mellis which caused him after the lapse of a decent interval he counted eighty seconds to follow once you said you would do anything for me she began with a lovely look did you mean it rather well then the next question is will your father do anything for you he'll do a good deal if you tell him you've a tip about some shares that are bound to rise will he give you the money to buy them he'd lend it that's his way he'd be tickled to see me taking an interest in business but what has that got to do with i want to buy some shares lots of shares all i can get hold of to-day they're going cheap to-morrow who can say they are clarios but look here even i know that clarios are no good it's a badly managed line and the shares are down to next to nothing all the better mr gallon mustn't know that you are in this as he wants to get hold of all the shares himself you must trust me enough to have them put into my name and when i've got your profit for you we'll go halves can you see your father inside half an hour his place is just around the corner well then if you do care anything for me ask him to see you through a big deal you shall really make on it i promise you something worth having besides my gratitude the governor's a queer fish if i should get him in you won't let him in but we don't want your father or anybody else in this with us all we want is the loan and his name which is a good one in the city i know i trust you for that you must show how clever you are if you're anxious to please me i'll manage the rest now like a dear good boy run off and arrange things with your father again tommy became knight-errant and hardly was he out of the way when a strange voice was heard in the adjoining office mr gallon in i'm mr mitchison from manchester mr gallon is out at present but a clerk had begun when joan appeared and cut him short mr gallon wishes me to see mr mitchison in his absence will you kindly step in here sir the gentleman from manchester obeyed joan's quick eyes noted his worried air and the genteel shabbiness of his clothing 
"'I am Mr. Gallon's confidential secretary,' she said. "'I know about this business of Clerios. "'You came instead of wiring? "'Mr. Gallon rather expected you would. "'I had to come to London in a day or two, anyhow, "'and it's always more satisfactory to do business in person.' "'Exactly. "'Well, I'm sorry to tell you "'that Mr. Gallon has seen reason to change his mind "'about buying your block of shares in the Clerio line, "'as he has some big things on now,' and finds his hands full. But Mr. Mellis, a client of his, the Salmon King, you know, wants to invest some money privately for his son. Mr. Gallon has advised them that, though Clerios are not likely to rise much for some years, there is a certain, if small, dividend. And if you can tell young Mr. Mellis where they can get hold of other blocks of the same shares, it might then be worth his while to take over yours. Those you hold are hardly enough for him without others.' I know several men in Genoa, where I did business for some years, who hold shares and would part with them for a decent price. I could work the deal for Mr. Mellis, I'm certain. Good, he's at his father's office now. I have Mr. Gallon's permission to introduce you to him, but his only free time this morning is in the next half hour. I can go with you to Mr. Mellis Sr.'s office if you're inclined to settle matters at once." The Salmon King, who had earned his title by building up the largest canned goods business of its kind in England, had offices on the ground floor of an imposing building not far away, and Joan was lucky enough to guide her companion to the door without the dreaded misfortune of meeting George Gallon on the way. As they crossed the threshold, Tommy Mellis issued from a room with a ground-glass door. Joan hurried to him, asked if his father had been kind, was assured that all was well so far, and hastened to explain the new development of affairs so clearly that even Tommy's slow intelligence grasped her meaning without difficulty. "'When I've introduced you to Mr. Mitchison, offer him twenty pounds a share. Their nominal value is fifty, and if necessary go up to twenty-five. Tell him he shall have a commission on all the other shares he can get, if the whole thing can be fixed up by wire to-morrow.' Say there is a man coming to see you the day after about some other investment, which your father prefers. But you've taken a fancy to this, and want everything settled before the two older men come together. As Gallon must do all his business in Clerios privately, and doesn't want to ask for them in the house, that will give us time to work. By Jove, this will mean a lot of money, faltered Tommy. Of course I'm delighted to do this for you, but if the governor— Joan soothed his fears, and introduced Mitchison to young Mellis, who took them both into a small, empty office. She hovered about during the business conversation which ensued, putting in a word here and there, and impressing the Manchester man with her shrewdness. In his opinion, George Gallon had a treasure for a secretary, and he was grateful to her for pushing on his affairs so well, especially as he did not believe he could have got from Gallon the price which Mellis was willing to give. When Joan returned to the office in Copthall Court, her employer had not yet come back. "'Don't tell Mr. Gallon I've been out, will you?' she appealed to the clerks, her slaves. As she spoke, the door opened, and Gallon entered, just in time to hear the ingenuous request. The young men flushed in consternation for her. But the girl did not change colour. As a matter of fact, she had known that George was coming up and had probably seen her on the stairs. She had not spoken without design. Having been delayed vexatiously, Gallon was not in a good mood. 
and his black ones were unpleasant for underlings. A frowning look and a gesture of the head called Joan to his private office. She followed meekly, but when the scolding had reached the stage which she mentally designed as ripe, her meekness vanished like the snow in sunshine. "'How dare you speak to me like that!' she exclaimed, her eyes blazing. "'I'm not your servant, though I've served you well. I leave today. This moment, if you choose,' George flung back at her furiously, though in reality he had not intended matters to touch this climax. Joan had become valuable, but as he said to himself in his sullen anger, she was the last person in the world whose impotence he would stand. When Joan had gathered up her few belongings and remarked that she would send for her typewriter, she added, "'Mr. Mitchison of Manchester called and wanted me to tell you that he'd already parted with the shares you wired about last night.' I asked who had bought them, but he was pledged to secrecy. I believe that is all I need say, except that you will find all your correspondence in good order, to be taken over by my successor, and as you have declared so often that clever stenographers are starving for want of employment, you will not be long in obtaining one. With this she was off, and hailing the first cab she saw, though in her circumstances a cab was an extravagance, drove to Woburn Place where she lived in a back bedroom on the top floor of a cheap boarding-house. She remained only long enough, however, to change into one of the pretty dresses left from last spring's wardrobe. Looking as if her home should be Park Lane instead of Bloomsbury, she went to the office of the Illustrated Weekly in which she had been interested that morning. When she inquired the address of Titania's owner, she was told that all business connected with the yacht would be done at the advertising bureau of the paper. This was a blow, for the proposal that Joan had to make was not, perhaps, of a kind suited to the taste of a mere commonplace agent. She thought for a moment, and then said, with a slight accent which she had learned through mimicking a girl at school, "'Well, I'm very sorry, but I'm afraid we can't do business, then. I'm an American girl. My name is Mordaunt. Grierson Mordaunt is my uncle. I guess you've heard of him. I want to buy a yacht, in a hurry.' My people generally are in a hurry, and I thought this one might do. But if I don't see the owner myself, it's no use. Good morning. Before she had got halfway to the door, the dapper manager of the advertising bureau stopped her. Possibly an exception might be made in her favor. He would write to his client. Can you send the letter by district messenger? shrewdly asked the newly-fledged Miss Mordaunt. The manager admitted that this could be done. To what hotel should he transmit the answer? I'm staying with friends, and I don't want them to know about this till it's settled, said Joan. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll wait here. End of chapter 3 Recording by Lynn Allison, 